We are, in some ways, wrapping up our Advent series this Sunday. Uh, Technically, next week is when we get to wrap up on Christmas morning, when we'll have kind of one service here at 945 for those of you who are in town, where we get to actually celebrate the fullness of what we've been building towards these last four weeks. But over these last four weeks, we started with talking about hope. That Advent and the coming of Jesus, not just his first coming, but the fact that he will come again one day, brings hope to us. And then we talked about peace, that Jesus has come and he has brought peace, not just within us or between us and others, but most important, he has brought peace between us and God through his life and death. Last week, Ryan talked to us about joy which we just sang about a few minutes ago, the joy of Christ's coming into the world. And then today, we're talking about our last one, love. Several years ago, I was uh, flying back from a youth camp that I had been helping out with in Tennessee. And so uh, flying back from that direction, I had a connection in Dallas to get home, as you always do if you want to get anywhere in Oklahoma, a connection in Dallas. And so my plane comes in and lands at DFW, and I make my way off the jetway and into the terminal there. And something you should know about me, uh, I love that moment right there. Uh, A lot of people hate layovers and uh, connections in different airports. I love connections in airports. I love walking through airports. If I can find like a really cool playlist and put that in my ears, something about like the the constant movement and the energy of the airport, that there are people and machines and signs going all left and right. If I can just walk through, there are times when my, my next connection, like my connecting flight is only like four gates away, and I'll just walk like the opposite way because that's too short a walk. I want to experience the vibe a little bit longer, right? And so I'll just walk like laps until it's my, my time to fly. And so I did that. I put the, put the headphones in and I began to walk. Uh, through the terminal, and it wasn't very long as I was walking before I came or or started to come upon. I could see kind of out in front of me a ways something a little bit unusual, and that was that in the the midst of this just throng of people, this, this constant movement, this crowd of people going left and right and back and forth and all over, there was one person just standing completely still. And not standing still like over in the gates waiting for their flight somewhere. Not, not even standing still like up against the wall like looking through their phone. They were right out in the middle of the main thoroughfares. People were walking in and around this person. They weren't looking at their phones, had their luggage in one hand, and they were just looking up at everyone else as they were walking by. I thought this was kind of interesting. As I got a little bit closer, I was able to kind of make out a little bit more details. It was, it was a man in probably his mid-60s, and he was wearing this bright red T-shirt. And, and across the T-shirt, there are these really big letters that said uh, just these words, I have good news for you. And I remember in that moment, as I'm getting closer to him, being a little bit torn, because on the one hand, like my, my interest is peaked, and I, I got to know what's going on, what this whole thing is. But on the other hand, there's part of me who's wondering if he's selling something, uh, if this is some kind of marketing ploy, and, and I don't got time for a sales pitch. It's totally going to kill my airport vibes to take my headphones out and all of that stuff. And so I don't know if I want to do this or not. And so I'm trying, as I'm getting closer to him, I'm having this little debate in my head. Do I want to walk and approach him and see what's going on here? 
or do I want to do that thing you do like with the uh, kiosk people at the mall where it's like kind of take a wide berth and don't make eye contact, don't make eye contact, right? So I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do in this moment, but as I get closer, my, my uh, curiosity gets the best of me. I can see that he's actually talking to people as they walk by. He's saying something to them. And so I'm like, I gotta know. So the, the, the plan I decided is I, I decided I'm gonna take my headphones out so I can hear. I'm not gonna walk directly up to him. I'm just gonna walk near enough by that I can hear what he's saying and then just kind of move on. And then I get closer and closer. Then at about seven feet away from him, he looks up and we make eye contact. And I'm like, oh boy, now I'm stuck. No matter, like this is happening now. Uh, but, but I just decided, okay, I'm just gonna keep kind of moving. I'm gonna walk right by him. And as I do, he holds eye contact with me. And this big smile comes across his face. And, and as he's smiling and looking at me, he just says these words, God loves you. And I remember being really glad that I went and checked it out. Glad that I took my headphones out in that moment. Brothers and sisters, friends, I have good news for you. And yet I recognize, even as I say that, that those words that that news can be kind of difficult news for some people. Not so much difficult to hear. I mean, who doesn't want to hear these truths? But, but difficult to believe. Difficult maybe to grasp. That the one true God, the one infinite transcendent being reigning over all things, the, the one who breathed out galaxies and stars and, and spun the earth on its axis and, and carved mountains into its surface and, and, and sustains all things, that that God knows you by name and loves you. That can be hard for a lot of people to believe. For some people, it's because it doesn't quite fit with the picture they have of God. A picture that's been compiled over time, maybe by their relationship with their parents, maybe by what they were told about him growing up, maybe by the, the things they've kind of pieced together as they've seen life unfold, this view of God, uh, of someone who is aloof, maybe. Maybe irritated, uh, emotionally withdrawn from them. For some people, it's, it's not what they think about God, it's what they know about themselves that keeps them from believing this. Like, they know enough of this book, they know enough about him to know how absolutely holy he is and the incredible high standards he has for us, the standards being himself and his own holiness, and they know inside that they don't quite measure up to those standards. And so they may be able to believe, because they sang Jesus loves me enough as a kid, they may be able to believe that, yes, so, I mean, I can't disagree with this, God loves me, but, but there's something inside of them that, that believes that that love always comes with like 30% frustration. Uh, a little bit of disappointment mixed in there. For some people, they have a hard time believing this because they look around at their lives and, and everything they see happening around them, it does not feel like the life of someone that God loves and cares about and is deeply engaged with. I know that there are people in this room right now who struggle with this concept of God's love for them, maybe because it seems too good to be true, maybe because it seems too abstract to be real. But my hope for you today is that you would know 
the truth. Uh, it has been uh, my prayer all week leading up to this, knowing how hard this is for me to properly convey. Uh, I've been praying all week that God would do what I cannot, and that is make this real to you. That the love of God at Christmas, that the love of God for you would be uh, real and it would be personal. What I want to do today is, is to kind of ask this question, what does God feel towards us, his people? I want to do that by looking back at, at, at what the scriptures say about how, how he interacts with his people in the past, how he talks about his relationship with his people, Israel, in the past, how he interacts with them and, and what he says and how he describes his own heart. And hopefully as we get a view of that, that gives us a better picture of his view for us, his people today. So let's jump in. Some 1,400 years before the first Christmas, God looked down on this tiny little nation, Israel, this fledgling people struggling under the oppressive boot of the world's dominant power at the time, the mighty Egyptian empire. And they were a nation, feels weird to even call them a nation because they're a nation with no land and no government no resources of their own. All they had was Egypt. They lived in Egypt, and all they were was slave labor for the Egyptians. So this people, Israel, operates there for years and years, and there is no hope for them. <laughs> their situation is hopeless and helpless. There's nothing they can do to make this situation better, to free themselves. They can't even hope that someone else will come and do something for them because what nation in their right mind is going to come and challenge the mighty Egyptian empire? There's no army coming over that hill in the next day or next week or next month anytime soon. This is what it is for them. And they're right, an army doesn't come. Instead, a man comes. One man, Moses, sent by God to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and God sends Moses to say this to Pharaoh, let my people go. Release them, set them all free. And Pharaoh essentially says, who's going to make me? I'm Pharaoh. This is Egypt. Who, who's going to make me let these people go? And then God makes him. God unleashes 10 devastating, incredible plagues on the land of Egypt and brings Egypt to its knees up until the point that, that Pharaoh and the Egyptians are practically pushing the Israelites out by the time. Just get out of here. Go, please. We can't take any more of this. And then they leave and they begin to make their way out into the wilderness. But just a day or two later, Pharaoh changes his mind. He can't part with that much free work. And so he musters up an army and begins to chase them down. And then God intervenes again and he opens up the Red Sea and they walk through it and then he closes it in on the Egyptian armies. And he's not even done there because after that, he leads these people to Mount Sinai where he sets down to make a special covenant with them to take these people as his very own and that he would be their very own God, his special people, he calls them his treasured possession. And then he takes them to a promised land, a land that he has set aside for them. And the question could be asked and has been asked, why? Why does God decide to intervene himself into world history 
and rescue these people. And, and these people specifically. Why of all people does he decide to make them his special people and to give them this promised land? Why them? Was it because there was something that God saw in them? Was it because they were a good and kind people as he looked down and they were more noble than all the other peoples on the earth? No. Was there something special or impressive that he saw in these people, some special quality? No. Did he see that these people could be useful to him and his purpose and his task? Again, no. He does have a special task for them. He does have a mission for them to bring his glory and his name into the world. But if, if he's looking for a useful and effective group of people to do this with, he chose the wrong side. He should have gone with Egypt. Uh, a civilization that, that is spreading its culture out to the world, a, a civilization that is setting the trajectory and the pace for the world around them. They would have been a much better choice for God to get his work done. But no, he chooses the B team. He chooses these guys to go and be his special people. Why? Moses actually tells the people why in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verses 7 and 8, Moses said these words, The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. He brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The reason God chooses these people and does this for these people is simple, because he loves them. Do you know what it's like to feel weak and insignificant? Do you know what it's like to feel powerless, to change your circumstances or your situation? To feel like all of your best efforts in life, if you're being honest, have not gotten you where you want them to be. Like, like if life is a marathon, everyone else is running on concrete and they're zooming past you, but it feels like you're running in quicksand and you keep putting one foot in front of the other and you keep trying to move and it feels like you should be so much further along, like you should have things so much more together and in place and yet here you are just a few feet in front of where you started so long ago. You know what it's like to feel captive to destructive thought patterns, to be held by guilt and shame of your past, to feel paralyzed by fear and anxiety and depression. If you do, if that's you this morning, I have good news for you. And that is that God loves people like that. That he delights in the weak and the weary. He is not put out by people who struggle, by those who do not have their acts together. He never rolls his eyes when you cry out to him in desperate need of help. Yet again, he is not inconvenienced by you. Matter of fact, he is in the business of helping people like that. Actually, not in the business. That would sound like it's just something that he does. It's not something he does. It's who he is. It's where he lives Psalm 34, 18 says it like this, the Lord is near the brokenhearted and he saves those 
crushed in spirit. This is important to know because it is the opposite of how we often feel. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which is a really good book and, and one that influenced a lot of my own thinking as I prepared this message, Ortland says that our tendency is to feel intuitively that the more difficult life gets, the more alone we are. And as we sink further into pain, we sink further into isolation. But, he says, the Bible corrects us on that. The Bible speaks against that way of thinking and feeling repeatedly. Over and over and over again, we are told that God's eyes are on the lowly and that his heart is with the lowly and that he gives grace to the humble and that he is near to the brokenhearted. He loves weary people. He loves weak people. And so God brings these weak and weary people, the Israelites, out of Egypt, setting them free, and he guides them through the wilderness, and he brings them up to the promised land, and it does not go well. Almost from the very moment he pulls these people out of Egypt, they begin to turn on him. They complain that what he's done for them is not enough, or that he's actually just made their situation worse. We were better off in Egypt. Why didn't you leave us there? They constantly push back against his instructions. They rebel against the leaders that he's given to them. And when he leads them up to this land, this beautiful gift that he's prepared for them, they refuse to go in. And that right there, the very beginning, is is like a microcosm of what their entire relationship with God will be like. It is a pattern that will be repeated time and time again for them. Years of rebellion and resistance and just plain apathy towards God. Centuries of that, actually. Hundreds and hundreds of years lived like that. And there are a few bright spots. There are good kings every now and then who point them in the right direction. There are these desperate moments where they realize how far they've fallen and they turn in repentance. There are these short spurts of faithfulness, but mostly it's just rebellion. Mostly, it's just one long disaster. And throughout that entire period, God faithfully reaches out to his people, faithfully calls them back to him through the prophets, reminds them of the covenant that he made with them over and over and over again. And one of the best summaries of Israel's history and their relationship with God is found in Hosea chapter 11. The first couple of verses of which go like this. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Israel called to the Egyptians even as Israel was leaving them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offering to idols. In the next several verses, God will describe how he led Israel like a father walks along with its new son who's, who's trying to learn how to walk, leading them by the fingers slowly and lovingly along. It describes how God time and time again provided for his people Israel, how God time and time again healed his people in their woundedness and in their waywardness. And yet in spite of all that, We see in verse 7, God says, in spite of everything I've done for you, he says, my people are bent on turning from me. And though they call to him on high, he will not exalt them at all. 
So we see in here God speaking to them. This verse summing it all up that God's people are bent on turning from him. They are dead set on it, on turning away from him. And, and what does God do after seven long centuries of this? There's 700 years of rebellion and hard-heartedness. He does what you would expect. He rebukes them. And he disciplines them. And he judges them. But do you know what he doesn't do? What he can't do? Stop loving them. This is how he continues Reading verse 7 again and the verses after, he says, My people are bent on turning from me. And though they call to him on high, he will not exalt them at all. I won't lift them up in their rebellion. But he says in verse 8, How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? Or how can I treat you like Zeboim, two famous towns that experienced total destruction many years earlier? And then he says, I have had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. I will not vent the full fury of my anger. I will not turn back to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I will not come in rage. This is fascinating to me. God is here reflecting and recounting on all the stubborn, wayward hearts of his people, which you would expect to cause him to only continue to grow in anger and rage and wrath. But instead, as God looks on these people, as he looks on them in their sin, he cannot help but be overwhelmed with compassion for them. It almost sounds wrong the way it's said that God's heart is changed within him, that he, he can't help it. How can I not, or how can I give you up? It's, it sounds weird because we know that, that God is, is not overcome by passing emotions like we are as human beings. He's steady and resolute. We know these things. And yet, if we're to take God at his word here, he describes himself as, as being just stirred up, emotionally moved at the sight of his sinful people, there is something going on that is hard for us to even put our fingers on, that when he sees these things, compassion naturally comes from him. And that might sound counterintuitive to you because that's not really how it works with us. That the more your children sin against you, when they, when they consistently disobey you a hundred times over in the day, you don't find your compassion increasing as that goes. When, when people who work with you or work for you consistently go against the things that you tell them to do, you don't find a greater level of mercy towards them oftentimes. You find yourself growing short and growing cold with them. But that's what God says at the end. He says, I get that, but I'm not like you. I am God, not a man. I don't operate like you. He's the Holy One who is different. Has it ever felt to you like you were just bent on turning from God. Like something in you just felt kind of broken. Like no matter how hard you try to obey or do the right thing, you keep failing. And every time you do it, you feel convicted and you feel guilty and you repent and you go back to God and you make these promises to him about, I'm so sorry, I'll never do it again, it won't happen again. And then you find yourself falling right back into those same sin patterns. You run back to pornography. You get angry and you lose it on your kids again. 
let your tongue slip and make those cutting remarks towards your spouse or towards a friend. You let fear win and you avoid speaking up when you know you should. You avoid stepping in when you know you should. And then after you yell at your kids and flip out, you leave and you go out into the car to go to work and you slam your fist on the steering wheel and cannot figure out why you keep doing this. Or, or after you make that little remark to your spouse and you go to bed and it's cold and the tension is there. Or maybe you go off and you look at that thing you know you shouldn't look at and you lay there with tears in your eyes wondering why you can't get it together. Why you can't figure things out. Have you ever felt like you were bent on doing the wrong thing. If so, I have good news for you. God loves people like that. He has a deep, warm tenderness for sinful screw-ups, for people up to their neck in shame and regret for people who try and fail and then try and fail again. He never tires of forgiving you. His compassion is not some limited commodity that slowly depletes over time after the 1,000th sin and the 1,000th apology on your part. On the contrary, Lamentations 3.22 says his mercies never run out. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness towards sinners like you. Great is his faithfulness towards sinners like me. Now, don't get me wrong. God is not okay with your sin. He does not want you to continue in those patterns. He does not want to leave you in those same sinful patterns. He is not a God who shrugs at your sin. That would be one of the most unloving things he could do. And so he doesn't. Thomas Goodwin is an old a Puritan preacher from the 1600s, and, and he draws this comparison. He describes sin being like a deadly disease that is ravaging the body of a small child. And he basically says, what parent, if they were looking at their child, their son or their daughter being just overcome by an illness, what parent would not do anything they could to rid that disease, to rid that child's body of that disease, even if the remedy was painful? Even if the remedy hurts to get rid of sin in that child and, and, or, or the disease in that child, and he says, that's, that's what God does for us. That God is willing to do whatever to rid us of the sin that is killing us, even if the discipline is hard at times. You can be sure that God hates sin and the way it is destroying his good creation. And you can be sure that one day he will rid all creation of this deadly disease, including including those who have chosen their sin over God. But you can also know that as his child, he looks at you with a different kind of compassion and love. Put yourself in that hospital room as you look at your child who's just being wrecked by illness or wrecked by injuries. Even, even if those injuries were caused by themselves, by their own foolishness, you would, you would still feel your heart aching for that child. You wouldn't find your, your heart growing colder to them because of what they did to themselves. Goodwin says it's the same for God and us. His heart doesn't get colder. He doesn't hold you at arm's length because of your sin. He sees what sin is doing to you, and that, that causes compassion and mercy and love to be stirred up in him. 
He loves struggling sinners. This is all very, very good news. But again, as I mentioned earlier, it is hard news. It is a hard thing for many people to grasp and to receive. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you struggle to believe this, that a being this big and this transcendent could actually care that much about the lives and hearts of people. Or maybe it's the personal aspect that is tough for you to grasp. Maybe, maybe this idea that he loves people is great and, and you believe that and, and you know that, that he loves people. You don't even mind telling other people that God loves them, but there is this sneaking suspicion in you that he maybe doesn't quite have that same level of feelings towards you. That his patience, his love is waning. That he is constantly disappointed that he loves you with like a sigh and a rubbing of his forehead and bless their heart. Maybe for you, you mentally agree with this concept that God loves. You just wish that you could feel it. You wish that there was something less abstract, something more concrete, more tangible that you could see. If any of that is you this morning, I have good news for you. That's what Christmas is. It's the whole point of Christmas. Christmas is God's love revealed, God's love made concrete, tangible, physical, like literally physical. God's love in the physical flesh and blood body of a baby boy. That's how 1 John 4, 9 in our text earlier, that's how he describes it there. This is what John tells us. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Notice, John doesn't say God's love was revealed to us as though it were a message that was like delivered down from on high, delivered from heaven, something sent to us in some kind of scroll. No, he says it was revealed among us in our midst and in our mess that that love literally walked around here on two human feet. But that love had a name. And if you have ever wondered whether or not God feels inconvenienced by your neediness, you just watch as Jesus goes out of his way to heal blind beggars and to touch lepers that no one else wants anything to do with. You watch him stop traffic in the middle of a crowd to bend down and look a bleeding woman in the eyes and show compassion and love to her and heal her. If you've ever wondered whether God holds you at arm's distance because of some recent sin in your life, you watch as Jesus embraces tax collectors and dines with prostitutes. You watch his incredible patience with failures like Peter and doubters like Thomas And if you've ever wondered what God's heart towards you really is, whether or not he really loves, you watch Jesus willingly take all of your failures and all of your rebellion and all of your shame and take that to the cross for you on your behalf. And know this, that Jesus is not some nicer version of the Father. Jesus says this, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So if you want to know God's heart for you, you look at Jesus' heart for people in the Gospels. John says that in his willingness to go and die, he does not just prove God's love for us, he defined it. 
This is what it says in verse 10. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's how we know what love is, and that's how we know that he loves us. We do not know God's love for us by looking at our own lives and asking how lovable we are. And we'll never know God's love by looking around at other people and seeing how much they've loved us or how much they've failed to love us. We'll never know God's love by looking around and and wondering how well our life is going. We don't even know God's love by trying to muster up those feelings inside of us. If you want to know how God feels about you, don't look there or there or here or anywhere else. Look no further than a manger in Bethlehem and a cross outside of Jerusalem. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. Call your attention back to him over and over and over again. Remind yourself of how he loved you enough to come and rescue you and to make you his. Make this personal for yourself. Say over and over again with the apostle Paul, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and died for me. When you come to Christmas, don't let that be abstract for you. Don't let that be generic. Know that that baby boy in a manger is the physical, tangible expression of God's great love for weak and weary sinners like you and I. It's one of the things that's so great about communion is that every week we get to come and take part in a tangible expression of the love of God. This is something that we get to do as God's own people that Jesus gave to us. And and if you were in this room today and you would not count yourself as part of God's people, you have not heard maybe some of this news before, you have never actually taken any sort of step to place your faith in Jesus, know that this offer is extended to you. He's not waiting for you to get your act together. He's not waiting for you to clean things up. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the offer is open to you. I hope that you will find someone after the service and talk to them, someone you came with or someone up front and ask them what it is to be a part of this kind of love. But every week we get to come together and when we are weak and weary, we see our own failures and our own struggles, we can come and remember this, that this is Christ's body given in love for us. So brothers and sisters, let's take together. And in the midst of our sin, when we are repenting and feeling guilty and overwhelmed by the things we have done, we can look to this and remember that God loved us enough that Jesus would spill his own blood to forgive us of our sins. So brothers and sisters, let's drink together. This Christmas, I hope that you will know the love of God, the love of God that runs deep and warm towards you, enough to send his own son that we might have life through him. And now, in gratitude, Let us stand and sing to him.